Today, we're going to have a look at the Arch Lich, the mouthless one, from the Level Up Advanced 5e group. We're going to talk more about Level Up Advanced 5e and the Monstrous Menagerie, and also take a look at a5e.tools, their online tool suite. We're going to do a product spotlight for the Night of the Desolution by Monty Cook Games, a 5th edition adventure set in the, the city of, of Tolis. We're going to talk about AlphaStream's latest video on finding your creative passion, and we're actually going to go through the exercise that he runs. And we're going to do our p more questions from the Sly Flourish patrons for June of 2022, all today on the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things D&D. If you like this show, you can help me out by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. The link to become a patron is in the show notes below. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive content, adventures, city source books, secrets and clues things to uh, uncovered secrets little ways to make your fifth edition game better video previews all kinds of stuff but most of all they help me put on shows like this so to the patrons of sly flourish thank you so much for your support so last week i talked about vecna the new stat block that the wizards of the coast team had put out definitely it occurred to me yesterday i was I, what, what video was i watching was I, I was watching a video about vecna oh yeah bob world builder had a really, really good video talking about the trends of D&D. Man, I should add this to the, the table of contents list. So Bob World Builder did a, did a video talking about the trends of D&D, and he talked about how the popularity of the search term for D&D went way up, but also about how like it went up you know, many, many orders of magnitude for Vecna. And it occurred to me that like one of the reasons why Wizards of the Coast made a Vecna stat block was so they had a landing page for their product when people did a Google search for Vecna, that that was actually a really good reason to make a Vecna stat block at that moment, release it at that time, was to capitalize on the fact that many millions of people are doing searches for the word Vecna. But in response, the folks from N-World who made the the fifth edition clone, I guess it's like a, it's a complete replacement for fifth edition or fully compatible fifth edition known as Level Up Advanced 5e, they made a new super powerful arch lich as well that they refer to as the mouthless one this was designed by paul hughes the same guy who did much of the design and much of the work on the level up 5e monstrous menagerie he also runs the website blog of holding where he's done lots of monster analysis fantastic dude very very into the math of dnd monsters and i was very excited to see a his version of a of an arch lich and they made one called the mouthless one you can find a link to the mouthless one in the show notes below and paul i love you but you know i'm going to poke at your monster a little bit i'm sorry i'm sorry ahead of time for poking at your monster a little bit but you and i've already talked about it. this is the stat block for the mouthless one and the mouthless one already right off the bat 630 hit points right way higher three times higher more than three times higher than i think than certainly than a lich Boy, that's like five times higher than a lich right and it is way higher than vecna and now you're talking hit points that can actually survive 20th level characters because 20th level characters can dish out tons of damage think about your paladin smiting multiple times in a turn think about your fighter who can do eight attacks with action surge and then power attack on those to do plus 10 damage it's 80 extra damage just there you need a lot of hit points to survive that also can fly 60 feet right so it can stay out of the way the mouthless one can stay out of the way and not get not get blasted all the time that's really good really high attributes really high saving throws really high skills immune to stunned which is really important so that's a stunning strike monk can't go up and punch you 12 times and stun you and get all your legendary resistance is gone so that that works really well legendary resistance mouthless one's vestments are awarded with three protective runes when it fails the saving throw it can choose to succeed instead so this is something that paul has done for the monsters 
features in Level Up Advanced 5e that instead of just having legendary resistance with no in-world in connection, he has created a way to show in the story of the monster why it has legendary resistance and how they work. So having three protective runes that are like glowing around it and then each time a legendary resistance breaks, the rune explodes. That works really well. It gives an in-world way to show that legendary resistance is there and that it's working. So Level Up Advanced 5e is sticking to the traditional spell slots and spell casting style of older monsters in 5th edition. I think that works fine. It says here are all the different spells that the Mouthless One would have prepared. Right. And how many times it can cast it based on its slots. It means DMs have the ability to like upcast stuff. But what's really important is this is not the only list that in fact, many of the abilities, if it's going to use spells, the spells are in the stat block so that you don't have to go down. Supreme Ritualist, it can know everything. Now, one thing I would probably mention is that it could have access to any spell. Right. When you have a 26, a CR 26 lich, a 20th level spellcasting lich, there's no spell you can know of that it doesn't know. Right. So the whisper thing is weird. I don't know like what whisper maze is like I, I, I forgot. He told me and I already forgot like what whisper does, but it's things like greater invisibility. It's got all kinds of stuff. Actions, touch of death. It can poke you. It can, it can hit you for 16, 61 necrotic damage. Bang 61, right? That's a lot of damage. Now we're talking real damage, right? Four necrotic. Let's see. Mouthless one can expend a fifth level spell or lower to deal an additional four D eight necrotic. So we could even increase it if you wanted to. I mean, I guess if you, you know, if you got it, you might as well. Arc Lightning. Mouthless on targets three creatures within 60 feet. What I like about this is it's very theater of the mind friendly, right? I don't have to put him in a line. I don't have to do a lot of positioning. He just holds out his hands and bolts of lightning hit three people. That's DC 24 deck save. Failure takes 56 lightning damage. I guess he does not take half damage on a miss. So that's kind of interesting. Greater invisibility. You know, it can do a concentration. Cone of cold. The 60 foot cone, 36 damage. Straight, straight. Straight Kona Cold. Disintegrate one target and does disintegrate, right? Reverse gravity. So lots of really good things. But you know, it's like all the things are in the stat box. So it's telling you like, these are the things you're most likely going to want to do, right? And they're straightforward spells. One thing that I really like about the Power Word Kill from Level Up Advanced Fight is it does 100 damage. So it's not the kind of spell that you get this like wah wah if you cast it on somebody that doesn't have it. It does 100 damage. And if it jocks it to zero, a target takes 100 damage. If the damage reduces, the target to zero, it dies, right? There's a trick here, and there's actually a part where I quibble about the tactics because you should not do that right away. You should wait till the party has been beat up a lot, and you look and you see that fighter looks like he's been beat up a lot. Bang. Ideally, he has less than 100 hit points, and he takes all of his remaining hit points and falls over dead. But if not, you still do 100 damage, but you wouldn't want to do it on somebody fresh because the likelihood is they have more than 100 hit points. Rest spell, another sort of counter spell thing. When a creature within 60 feet casts a spell, mouthless one makes an intelligence spec check. On a success, the spell fails and the mouthless one can cast the spell immediately without expending a slot. You cast on me, I counter it, I throw it right back at you. That's hardcore, right? That's really cool. You could be a little nicer and potentially say he doesn't counter the spell, right? He just gets to copy it and throw it back at you. Right. Or maybe he either gets the counter or he gets to throw it back at you. Give him one of the option or the other, depending on what it is. Legendary actions. A mouthless one ends one negative effect currently affecting it. So as a legendary action has the equivalent of like legendary resistance and thing. And I presume that means you could get rid of like, a. Uh, I was stuck in a force cage. I can get rid of the force cage, right? One negative effect. That's a big... What does that mean? What, what, you know, is he being affected by a force cage? Probably. Share mind. Mouthless one targets a creature within 120 feet. DC 24 wisdom save. Success to target is immune to share mind for one hour. On a failure, the mouthless magically creates a mental link with the target until the end. Blah, 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 blah. 
So the link ends. The Malthus one takes only half damage from dealing to it and the target is out. So this was a legendary... This was a lair action of the Lich, I think, or very similar to the lair action of the Lich. And I think it works great, but boy, 630 hit points and you're flying and you got this, but that's pretty great when you're sharpshooting rangers like pew, 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 pew. Oh man, my wizard's dead. Uh-oh, the wizard died. What? Ha- Why is the wizard, you know, that fun stuff. Stunning secret. This one that I didn't really get. Malthus one telepathically offers a tempting secret to the target under the effect of its share mind, right? The target can choose to learn the secret. If it does so, it is stunned. When would you ever choose to be stunned <laughs> right like i just need a break and 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 i get that it's like well it's the idea of like learning this thing there's no bit of lore you're going to learn in the middle of a fight that's going to make you want to be stunned right there's nothing i could tell you the location of a vorpal sword you could get right after this i'll i'll tell you which one of the tiles of my floor has a vorpal sword under it if you'll be stunned you're like nah i'm gonna hit you instead right cast a spell two can cast a fifth level spell or less for two actions and then malign transportation can teleport up to 30 feet to a space you can see. One problem I have, teleport 30 feet to a space you can see, the space is occupied by a medium. They both teleport. So it can, it can teleport and it can swap. That's pretty cool. One problem I have is that there's not a lot of single-use legendary actions that it can take to work with these other ones. Like Elite Recovery, it's only going to use when it needs to get rid of an effect. Share Mind, it's only going to do the one time, right? I guess it will always do a Share Mind at the beginning of a, of a round. So that, because I think it only lasts for one round, right? Target's immune to Share Mind for one hour. If it makes a save, links until the, until the end of the target's next turn. Creates a mental link with the target until the end of the target's next turn. That's a weird bit because then initiative matters. So it doesn't last again. It doesn't last until the end of the mouthless one's turn, which I think it should, right? Because if he does it on, you want to do it on like the last person in initiative right before you, it's weird. I don't know why it's not on the mouthless one's next turn, but I guess it would do shared mind every turn, right? Always doing shared mind and then using these other two point casting cost things. But I probably, that malign transportation, I probably make that a cost one, right? I would, I, I think that could be, that could be less. So then they talk about combat. Mouthless one uses most powerful spells early in combat. Power, whisper, kill, whisper, maze, disintegrate. I don't think it would use power, whisper, kill right off the bat. I think he would hang on to that. So it's pretty cool that it's got like a tactic section. I just questioned the tactics a little bit. So I think my only complaint with it is really strong. I probably stronger than, it's definitely stronger than Vecna, right? And I think my only complaints is that it could use a couple of single use legendary actions that are things like a third level spell, right? Like can it do a third level spell as a single action rather than a fifth level spell? Right? Like lightning bolt. I, I like the idea that it could just throw out lightning bolts. Bang, 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 bang. Right? I think that that would be really cool. Maybe even a 3.1 that lets you do arc lightning again. Or 2.1 that lets you do arc lightning again. Really strong. Right? Really great stuff. And this is all to kind of get to the idea that seriously, you should pick up the level up advanced 5e monsters menagerie. It's available for $20 on the drive through RPG. It is a 500 page book, 535 page book that re redoes all of the monsters, almost every monster from the fifth edition, from the fifth edition monster manual and makes them far stronger, far, you know, a lot more interesting tactics, really, really excellent book. If you have not checked it out, check out the level up, level up 5e monsters menagerie just as a, Another book to have on hand and you're like, you know, I want to try a different kind of white. You have a different kind of white. You want to try a different kind of vampire, try a different kind of vampire. Their lich is really, really awesome. So really check it out. And the other books too. I know everyone talks about the, the player's book and the and the GM's book are also really good. I just have not had the time to really dig into them. I've really only looked at the monster book, but I love the monster book and you should pick it up. I actually picked up a physical version. I think it's shipping. It was expensive. It was like 
80 bucks or something like that. It's expensive for the physical one. But 535 page giant ass tome of monsters. Worth it. Check that out. Another thing that the Level Up Advanced 5e crew has put together is a really good website. Almost very, it's very D&D Beyondy, right? It doesn't, I don't think it has character creation in it yet, right? It has, but it's basically a website that has all of the information. So like as an example, we'll go to the regular Lich, right? And feels very much like your kind of Cobalt Fight Club sort of idea. It's got, but it feels very DNB, very fast, works well on a phone. I think the margins on the phone are a little narrow. So, but you have all of your monsters stat blocks on here. And here is our Lich, you know, the regular Lich, CR21. How's the hit points on that? 170, still pretty low on hit, on hit points, right? But I think this one's got lots of, lots of ways to protect itself. Yeah, the Eldric Aura, which I think we talked about before. So a really cool website and it's open to everybody. So it's, it's link, link to it is in the show notes below. Explore your monsters. If you're not sure if you want to pick up the monsters menagerie and you're like, I don't know, you know, take a look. Cause you can go to monsters, go to white. Whites are another monster. I think are underpowered in 5e long sword attack, right? Six plus three and then bonus action life drain, right? So that's very cool, right? It's got, it's got some very cool stuff that this, that this white, that's white does at CR3. Very good website. Very cool. I don't know. I'm hoping that they keep it open. I presume that they will keep it open and not lock it down to just people who bought the books or thing. I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know how you make all this available and then not make it available, but right now it's all available and very, very cool stuff. Really good website. Works really well. I dig it. So check it out. That's in the show notes below. That's for free. You can just try it right now. All right, you don't have to buy anything. So now we're going to do a spotlight for an adventure written by Monty Cook Games. Monty Cook was a, if you don't know who Monty Cook was, he was a developer for the third edition of D&D. He's been an RPG luminary for now some time. He runs his own company called Monty Cook Games, built the excellent RPG Numenera, which I've been running. You can find on my YouTube channel, a whole list of videos where I, where I talk about the Numenera campaign that I'm running. I'm actually running it just in, in a couple hours. Really, really good designer and really good design company. Uh, Bruce Cardell works for there. A whole, a whole team of excellent RPG developers that work at Monty Cook Games. And they had a campaign for Tolis, a giant city, city source book, huge source book. It's, it's like a giant phone book size city source book. And as part of that Kickstarter, they had a bunch of other supplementary adventures. One of these adventures is called Night of the Dissolution, which I got as part of the Kickstarter, but is available for sale. Links to pick it up are in the show notes below. It is worth noting, though, that the book expects that you have the Tolis source book. So you can you can certainly pick up the adventure, probably get a lot out of it even if you didn't have Tolis, but really it's designed to be part of the Tolis campaign so it's something that you would have if you had Tolis. it is a adventure rewrite of an adventure that monty cook ran as when when he ran Tolis. so when when monty cook put Tolis together my I, if i understand it correctly he built Tolis as a campaign for him to test out dnd third edition stuff right it was his home campaign that he was going to use to try and test out third edition stuff and one of the, he did a series of adventures and he took a lot of the stuff and turned it into a product. And, and there's two, there's the, the Bane Warrens is one of them and Night of the Dissolution is another. And one of the things I like about it, it is a, it is a pretty beefy adventure. It is only available in PDF. You cannot get a physical version of this adventure for fifth edition, but it is a big one. It's 112 pages. So it's a good size, good size campaign. I think they said it goes from like fifth level to ninth level. It wasn't really clear. Yeah. Fifth level to ninth level is the adventure, the adventure design. 
And so it was already written for the third edition of D&D and now has been refreshed for the fifth edition of D&D and for Cypher System. So if you want to run it using the Cypher System, which is the Monty Cook Games home style RPG adventure, same one they use for Numenera, you can run it in, in, that, in that sequence. Excellent looking adventure, beautiful, cool artwork. Again, kind of expects that you have told us. And it is a, it is an episodic adventure, right? It has kind of big chunks, big episodes that all result around a, a big cult awakening some terrible horrors underneath the city of Tolis, which can cause all kinds of problems. And by the way, also getting a barbarian, a barbarian horde to attack the city as well. And your job is to kind of dissect this and navigate this and figure out how to take it apart. So really cool stuff, beautiful maps, you know, good, good, cool artwork, really neat stuff. I would definitely, when I saw this and I was, I was looking through this, I immediately started dreaming. One of the things they talk about in here is that you can take this adventure and you can take, you can take this adventure, you can take the Bane Warrens adventure. I don't, Bane Warrens is about the same size. I think it is also available. You can find a link to the Bane Warrens in the show notes below too. You can take both of these and kind of shuffle them together. And then you have sort of a wider campaign with a lot of different avenues. And it talks about like which chapters you would run when. There's a whole section in, in, in Night of the Dissolution that talks about how to mix Bane Warrens together. And both of those play off of the adventures that are inside the Tolis core book. So the idea is you would take the Tolis core book, you'd understand the city, you'd run a city adventure, you'd run the adventures that are in Tolis. And when you hit the end of that, they're at the right level to start doing these other two campaign paths. And then you follow those two campaign paths. And I think between the adventures that are in the Tolis source book and these two together, you have so many different kinds of things that you can sort of mix and match and turn into a campaign. It really gave my brain you know, it really built a, in my brain an, an image of running a Tolis campaign, which I, I said, like, I probably won't get around for a while. But now I'm like, I don't know, it might be kind of fun to run a Tolis campaign. So I really dig it. If you're, if you're into Tolis, if you want to run like a giant city-based campaign, the Tolis book is really, really co- cool, really, really good book. And with these two adventures sitting on top of it. Now, I have not done a thorough read of all of them. I have not run these adventures. I do not know. Do they run perfectly well? There have been occasions where I've had trouble with Monty Cook games and their balance of certain fifth edition like things. I don't feel like they have, you know, perfectly embraced exactly how the balance of fifth edition are going to be. Mostly when I was running Arcana of the Ancients, there were items in Arcana of the Ancients that had rules that I was like, that you'd never want to do. Like giving somebody a magic item that has advantage all the time bad idea so i have not said is it is it completely you know as you know as a does it does it you know have i ever run it completely no i have not i've not run it so i don't know that is everything perfectly balanced hard to say but you know we're good dms i'm sure we can fix anything that we kind of run into that so so it's really good stuff the the, the adventure is really cool it is a rewrite of one so it's one adventure that has been around it was back in the early 2000s probably and rewritten so it's very unlikely that a lot of people have seen the old one and and now see the new one but Really looks like good stuff. Very cool. I dig it. I would definitely consider adding this to my campaign stack of third-party campaigns that I would want to run, which includes like Empire of the Ghouls and Scarlet Citadel by Cobalt Press. I would put this on the list too. I would say like, hey, you know, I would add this to my menu that I would offer my players. Do you guys want to play a giant city-based adventure? A lot of words, right? So if you're going to run something like this, though, the Tolos book is enormous, right? It's like 700 pages. And then you'd have this, which is like 112 pages. And you have Bane Warns, which is also like 100 some pages. So boy, you're asking for a lot of material. Somebody brought up like, is it, you know, does, do, do, does running published material make your life easier? The answer is no. 
You're, it, it is not easier to run published material than it is to run homebrew material. There are arguments for which one is harder and in what ways. What you do get with published material is lots and lots and lots of very high quality stuff that you can directly throw to your players that you don't have to do. Artwork, maps, designs, ideas, plots, all the stuff that you would have to come up with on your own. You don't have to, you don't have to come up with that stuff, but you still have to read it. You still have to understand it. You still have to prepare it. So I don't think running a published adventure is easier than running a homebrew adventure. I think that you can potentially offer higher quality materials to your players when you're picking up published adventures. And I think you definitely, you definitely would in this case. So yeah, I mean, I love running published adventures and I would definitely, I would definitely add this to my list. So, so check it out. This is Night of the Dissolution. It's available on Drive RPG. Links to it are in the show notes below. You can, you can pick it up. Again, it's digital only, so you cannot, there are, it is unfortunately not a physical version. I would like to have a physical version if I was actually going to run at my table, but say la vie. My friend Teos, who goes by AlphaStream on Twitter, has a, started a series of YouTube videos on, uh, on how kind of how to make it in the RPG industry, things to things to consider while you're while you're trying to make your way in the RPG industry. For this show and for almost all of the work I do, I tend not to focus on producers. I'm my 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 calling in life is not to necessarily help people become producers of D and D material. My calling is to help dungeon masters run great games. But I'm very interested in this topic. And Taos and I we talk about this all the time. I talk about this with other producers. It's definitely it's not that I don't want more people to get involved in the RPG industry. It's just not the focus of what I bring. But boy, do I have thoughts about it. I have lots of thoughts about it. And I'm really glad that Teos is doing this series of videos to talk about, you know, how you can think about getting into the TTRPG industry. And I wanted to talk about it here on the show because I think it is such a valuable service and I want to offer it. Again, links to the video for Teos's videos are in the show notes below. If you are interested in becoming an RPG producer, I think you could do far worse than looking at these videos. It's really, really good stuff. One of the things that Teos talked about this was the idea of finding your creative passion. How do you, how do you look at all the possible possible things that you might make in the RPG world and decide which are the ones that you want to make. And he put together a spreadsheet. You can actually, in the show notes of his video, you can find a link to the Google Drive, the Google document where you can copy it and then make your own spreadsheet and kind of walk through and say, he basically takes, let's see, because I did it for myself. So he breaks down a bunch of different types of things that you might make for the RPG industry, core mechanics, game subsystems, ancestries and races, classes, spells, gear, magic items, feats, NPCs, monsters, adventures, gaming and GM advice, setting material. And then, and then breaks that down by four categories. How passionate are you about this? What, which ones bring you the most joy? How much effort does it take you to make it? What is the length of time it takes you to make it? And does it contribute to your overall goal and your success? Which was really the video he talked about last time. How do you help define what success means to you? right? How do you define what it means to be successful in the RPG industry? So I thought it'd be fun. Like, why don't I do this? Right? Well, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll try it. Now, one of the, my criticisms, and I gave him this critic, this criticism was like, you kind of already know, but maybe not, right? Maybe I know, cause I've been doing this a long time. I know which ones I'm good at or which ones I like doing. And I know which ones I don't, I don't need a table to tell me that. Like, I already know, but I'm like, I'll go through the exercise. It'll be interesting. And so I, I think I think it could be useful if you're like, I really want to make something, but I don't know what. You can kind of go through this list and, and sort of think about it. And so I said, what the hell? Like, I'll go through it. So like core game mechanics was like, eh, I kind of do a little bit of that. Every so often I like make my own. Everybody makes their own RPG. Everybody's like, oh, I really don't like how this works. So I'm going to make my own. So I made my own. I've done it, but I don't really do that. It's certainly not. It's high effort. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a fair bit of time and it does not contribute to my goal. I don't want to make a new RPG, right? Then a whole bunch of these, I'm like, I don't care, right? Game subsystems, don't care. Ancestors and races, sorry, don't care. Classes, don't care. Spells, eh, a little bit, right? Gear and magic items, yeah, 
little bit more. Feats? Nope. NPCs? Yes. Monsters? Yes. I, I like making monsters. Adventures? Oh, yeah. I love making adventures. Gaming and GM advice? What the hell else do I do? Right? So that was a 10. And settings? I like making settings. Kind of. Like, I like City of Arches that I'm making a lot. So you can kind of see where I like to, to make, make things. And you can see where the level of effort where the level of effort goes and stuff like this and what contributes to the goal. Really... Honestly, most of the people are following me because of GM advice, right? Like lots of people are writing adventures. There's lots of really great adventures. Why would you pick up mine over somebody else's? I, I'm glad you have. Many people have, and I'm very grateful. But there's lots of people making that stuff. But GM advice, there's also a lot of people making GM advice. But I've been doing that a long time, and people seem to, you know, they like Return to Lazy Dungeon Master. So so that's definitely like why it contributes to my goal is number 10 is, is that. And you can see because like Lazy DM's Companion, far more successful Kickstarter than the adventure books I wrote, right? So that it was, it was an interesting exercise. It really didn't tell me anything I didn't know, but again, I'm kind of already established in how I treat this industry. One of the thoughts that I had about this that I don't think he really talked about in the video because we're talking about passions, right? He was talking about which, which ones are you passionate about? And the thing is like, you can be passionate about something and no one, it's not that valuable to people. And one of the things that has occurred to me, the more I do this is that, the easy, the things that are easy for me to do are not the things that people find most valuable. I don't think they are the things that make what I'm putting out there really valuable. It's the pain in the ass stuff that makes it valuable. When I, writing an adventure is easy, right? Right, for me, not really. I mean, writing an adventure is not as easy as writing GM advice, but putting it down, getting the words down, not so bad. It's making sure that the language that you use matches the language and the style of the game that you want to write. The editing, the rewriting, the testing, the trying things out, play testing, feedback, design, development, laying it on a page, commissioning artwork, managing all of the different odds and ends. Like it was Ruins of the Grendel Root where I realized that like 5% of my effort was writing that book and 95% was production and playtesting and art direction and all of the other aspects managing the kickstarter doing all these other things and a lot of those other a lot of those other pieces a lot of those other components of making stuff are really hard and that's why it's valuable what was the book i just got the tome of heroes i just got the physical version of the tome of heroes by cobalt press and this is sort of like a new xanathar's guide right? A third party Xanathar's guide packed with new races, packed with new classes, packed with new stuff. And right in the beginning, I was like, they have pages and pages of playtesting groups. They listed every playtesting group that playtests and offer feedback. And it's hundreds of them. It's three full pages, four pages of playtesters, right? Trust me, getting people to playtest your stuff and coordinating the, the result of that is really hard. And that's what makes a book good. Writing a feat is easy. Testing a feat and making sure it works exactly the way it's intended and not any more so, really hard. And everyone gets it wrong from time to time. Wizards of the Coast has gotten it wrong, right? So lots, lots of stuff going on there. So it's that hard work that you might not, it might not be drawn out of a table like this that you're like, oh, I really love doing X. Well, great. But is that actually what people value from you? Or is it these other things that you're able to do that make something really good, that polish it up, that's hard. Revising is hard. Editing is hard. Getting editing and, and feedback from someone else. I love Scott Gray and we, we work really well together. That's still a lot of effort for both of us to manipulate these words and get them to the point where they're something digestible that's better than just what you can find on reddit because like the gm advice category is really good right gm advice is cheap right it's easy to get 
Trust me, every GM has advice and they're all free to give it. They all love to give it. So charging somebody, if you're going to charge money for GM advice, you better have something way better than what you could get from somebody going to the, the DM Academy, right? On, on Reddit, the DM Academy, everybody's got DM advice there. So what are you offering that's valuable? That's more valuable than what anybody else can you provide. And for me, it's like talking to tons of DMs and getting lots of different advice. So I'm not just parroting back my own nonsense. I want you guys to recognize, I want you guys to have a view into lots of DMs and what they do and what are those ideas and refining those ideas and thinking about them. And I spent a long time on that. I spent a lot of effort on that. And it's not all easy. It's very hard, but that's where something can be more valuable than just a DM offering their advice, right? So I think it's really important to recognize as a creator, not only what you really love doing, right? Because that's great, but you know, lots of people love doing things that don't really make the world better. But what are the parts that you're good at that are really hard that other people are not willing to do to give it to them? You know, how do you write maps for adventures that are really good commission the maps so they're beautiful, lay them out, offer them in a perfect VTT thing that they can drop into a thing, right? I didn't know anything about making VTT maps and I'm still not great at it, but I try harder to make sure that the maps that I put out with my products are things that people could drop into whatever their VTT of choice is. There are cartographers who are really good at it, right? That are really, really good and understand all of that stuff. There are other parts that they have to commission out because it's like they can't do it. Layout is really hard, right? So the hard parts are the things that I think really make a good product different from an, an average product or something that you can get for free. And sitting down and writing a document in Word and writing up a bunch of feats and be like, I think it'd be really cool and this feat would be really good. And you put it out there. Great, but there's a lot of people putting out a lot of feats. So what is it about your feat? What are you offering? What's the hard work that you're doing? That's going to make your feat that you're putting out better than all of the other feats that are out there to the point where you're willing to charge a dollar for it. Right. And that's the hard part. So th that was what came to mind when I was watching Teos's video. It's not contrary to anything that he says. It's all true. It's just that was the thing when I was watching this video. I said, you know, that I think is something that I'd like to talk about. And so I have. Let's do some Patreon questions. Every month I put up a thread on the Sly Flourish Patreon asking for people's questions. They post them. I answer the questions on Patreon. Some of them I take and I talk about on this show. Other ones I will take and turn into articles or videos or newsletters or whatever as, as, as they, they cover bigger topics. So we are going to dig into them. First question from Malcolm G. I am a big fan of the one-page dungeon contest and how quickly it can be used at the table. Can you recommend any other similar resources that can be dragged and dropped for quick use just before or during a session? Yes. First of all, I can offer a book that I wrote called Fantastic Layers. I wrote this book with Scott Gray and James Intercasso. It is a book of boss battles and locations that are all relatively small and self-contained. They're two to four pages and you can take them and you can drop them right into your game. If you want to just have a fun encounter, you don't need it to be like a boss fight. You could take one that is lower level than your characters. So you might, you might have them go through an interesting area. They fight kind of a boss, but it doesn't have to be a super challenging boss fight. It could be one that is sort of a side quest, but you can take that and and set that aside as well. A couple of other products that I like, the Prepared Books by Cobalt Press. Cobalt Press has lots of really good books of layers and small adventures that you can check out. But two of them, and you'll find them in the show notes below. Unprepared Volume 1 and 2 are excellent sources for these short. Uh, John Sawaski wrote those. 
The Game Master's Guide to Random Encounters is another book. You can get a hardcover. I, I, I got a copy from Amazon. It's re actually really cheap given the given the quality of the book. $17, really good. But you can also get the PDF available on DriveThruRPG. Links to that are in the show notes below. Great big book of all kinds of different small encounters that you can drop into your drop into your game. So all four of those are good. Fantastic Layers, Prepared 1 and 2, and Game Master's Guide to Random Encounters. Those are all books that I would, that I would recommend. That's not all of them. There are others too. I'm forgetting many of them, but those are ones that I would check out. And again, you you can find those on the podcast or in the video. You can find links to those in the show notes below. Matt A says, how can I apply step one, review the characters when preparing a one shot when the PCs are unknown? Is there a different strategy? Is there a minimum amount of info that I need from the players about their characters during prep? Are there important parameters that I should define for the players to create their characters with to ensure my prep? Matt, that's like 12 questions, but I'll answer it anyway. The answer is sometimes you just don't know. And if you don't know, you just skip that step. Right. If you just like, I'm just making an adventure and they'll come with what they come with. It really depends on what kind of one shot. Do you have control over the characters at all? If you are building a one shot and you're telling your players to build and come with characters ahead of time, you can still offer them a one page guide that says, make sure all your characters have these motivations or ask yourselves how these characters know this important NPC. You can give them some pre material to help them wire their characters around. And then ideally you might say, can you tell me what, you know, tell me about your character before the game, right? You could do a little bit of that. So if you're also making pregens, you can design the pregens to have hooks already that are, and then you can review the characters because you know which character is going to have what ties in your adventure. You just don't know which player is going to play that character. So if like the pregens for Lost Mine of Fandelver have little hooks in them about where they're from and what their connections are and things like that. So if you, you know, if you're doing that, if you're doing something like that, if you're doing pregens, you can have some wired one. And you could also do things like have little three by five cards that have like a little hook about how the character is connected into the story and you hand those out to the players. So even if they have their own characters and you can let them know you're going to do this so they'll kind of keep backgrounds open that say you're going to have these connections to the characters you don't know which one like you and the main npc were a veteran together i have a adventure that i wrote for patrons called regnum Rattus, the rats in the cellar one of the things i have in there is all the characters have some kind of relationship with the guy who owns the bar they either fought in the war together or they're old family members or they have some other you know some other relationship and we would establish those at the beginning of the game to say this is how your character is tied to the rest of the world so those are a few ideas but really the context matters most but in certain circumstances remember that the eight steps steps are modular you can skip the ones that do not make sense and and it might make sense that reviewing the characters you don't know who they are so out it goes paul b says what would a player focused content creator look like well we have a few given the ratio of players to dms and often remarked upon example of critical role are you aware of content creators who really specialize on increasing the enjoyment and skill of us as players i i don't know anybody who focuses exclusively on that but there are definitely content creators that have some excellent videos about how to be a good player i do have a video where i talk about tips for being a good player you'll again paul and everybody else, you will find a bunch of videos linked in the show notes below for things like this. Ginny D does a lot of videos where she talks about this kind of thing. She she has definitely expanded beyond just how to be a good DM, but also how to be a good player. She has videos. On. I just watched one this morning from Bob World Builder. Bob World Builder is a fantastic guy on YouTube. Really, really excellent channel talking about D&D stuff. Really fun stuff. Really fun channel. One of my favorite one of my favorite D&D channels. And he had a video where he talked about what are some things he went out and talked to a bunch of DMs, 300 some DMs and categorized them and said, what are the things that players can do to be great players from a DM's perspective. I've taken this as well. And and lots of really good stuff there. So those are some more important than like, you know, you those are all great. Ginny D and, and Bob World are fantastic ones. There are other ones too, but those you'll find some videos in the show notes below for a video I did on it, but also videos that they have done uh, to talk about how to be a better player. There's an interesting thing with that question though. 
I don't think players are seeking out material on how to be better players the same way that DMs are seeking out material on how to be better DMs. And it's not bashing players, but I think the level, the general level of investment that's different between players and DMs exists. And I think players are there in a different way and they approach the hobby in a different way, which is one of the reasons why I focus on DMs, right? So I think it's certainly valuable. And, and even I think Bob says like, hey, it's very possible your DM sent you my video as a player, right? So, you know, the DM is, might be more interested in helping players become good players than the players are, right? So that's, that's, that's certainly... That's certainly something to consider. One of the things I don't recommend, like I don't, the idea that players are seeking how to optimize their characters is certainly not something I'm going to promote, right? Because there are definitely ways to do it, but is that that's certainly not the kind of game I want to play. And so, yeah. Do I think character optimization is a bad way to play and that you're wrong? No. Do I have to like it? No. Right? Do I have to support it? No. So I won't. Yeah, but the reality is I just think players have a different kind of investment. I, I would say their investment is generally lower in the game than DMs are. And, and that's, you know, I don't think it's bad. It's just kind of the way it is. Matt M says, how do you handle character death immediately when it happens? It sort of feels weird to just have the narrative moment and then move on as if there aren't real players sitting there all feeling emotions and needing to process it. But it also feels strange to pause the game and have a therapy moment asking everyone how they're feeling. How do you feel about the fact that our, our character just got disintegrated? We may be in the middle of a really tense battle and that just kills the moment. And then there's the practical matter of what to do with the player who doesn't have the character for the rest of the session. How do you handle this? What have you found works well? I, I don't have a great answer for the first part. Like, how do we handle it emotionally during the game? Not not great, Bob, right? Like, not 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 super well in my experience. Like, I, I've, I don't think I've handled it particularly well. And I think, like, you can watch on live play streams and see people that, that don't handle it well. And it depends. Like, some people, they're like, oh, it's like, you know, I've got three other backup characters. But sometimes it's it's not great, right? Character death isn't great. Some of it is like, is there any way for them, the character, to come back? Is there chances for revivifies? Are there chances for resurrections? Are they really, really gone, right? And I've had certain characters die, Right. And, and some it's like, ah, you know, it's like losing in a video game. Right. It's not a big deal. And I've had other people, it's like, no, it's a really emotional experience. And I'm not great at how to handle the therapy moment. Like, I, you know, with respect, you try not to make jokes. You try not to, you know, mock, mock the situation and, and let it kind of hang there. Right. And not take it away. People know what happens. But the second part of the question I can't answer, which is get them back into the game as fast as possible, either resurrection or Find some way to bring a new character into the game quickly. And if you think that you're going to be in a lethal game, have a way, warn them, right? Hey, you may want to have a backup character and have a way for them to pick up like an NPC or another character or anything to get them back in the game. Even if it's handing them an NPC stat block and they're running that NPC as a, as a character that has now joined the players, the other characters. But getting a new character into their hand and into the game fast is really important because you don't, it's already bad enough their character died. You don't want them sitting there for an hour waiting for them to have any kind of connection to the game. Because if you think about it, the only connection that the players have to the game is through their character. Their character is the connection to the game. If the character is gone, they have no connection to the game. They might listen to what's going on, but now they're a passive participant in a game that they were expecting to be active. So here's an exercise for you, right? If you're running, even if you're running a death trap dungeon that's been buried in the ground for a thousand years and there's no way that like another adventurer would show up, think of 10 ways that they can bring another adventurer in. And, you know, I've got a bunch like the, the, you know, the statue of a petrified adventurer who has a scroll of stone to flesh in his hand, right? The mirror that suddenly spits out an NPC, the, you know, the NPC monster that kind of crawled through another tunnel and showed up, right? 
think of 10 ways that you can bring another character in so that the minute that they die, the minute you kind of get past that moment, you know, somebody wanders down the hall that the player can then grab and use as a character, right? I think, I think that you want to have some ideas. And to me, a good exercise is what are 10 ways that you can do that? So if, you're, if this is something you're thinking about, try that exercise out. Matt, I hope that answers your question. Carl A says, the last campaign we played, they complained that the combat was too easy and that they wanted it to be considerably more challenging this time. I know that you can tune the monster dials, but what other ways are there to make combat more challenging and more tactical? It's a really good question, Carl. And some groups definitely want this, right? Some, some, this is one where different groups want different things. So yeah, we talked about the four dials, right? Number of monsters, hit points of those monsters, the number of attacks they make, and the amount of damage that they do. Those are four really easy dials that you can turn before or during a game to scale things up, right? And it's, those are lazy dials. We like lazy tools here. I'm lazy Dungeon Masters, not lazy DMs. You know, lazy D&D talk show. So we want easy ones. Some other ones, though, that you can throw in there. Terrain is a real big one. Like setting up really complicated, weird terrain. If you're playing in a map, you can definitely do a lot with terrain of how do I get across different things? How do I deal with it? You could put the monsters in really advantageous positions for them that are really disadvantageous for the characters. Oh, the wizard is up on an icy precipice with like smooth, slippery ice to get up there. Right? And I don't know how the hell you're going to get up there. And he's throwing fireballs down at you. So terrain is a big one. I mean, mixing up terrain. Change, another huge one that lots and lots of DMs talk about is changing what success looks like, right? So success isn't just killing all the monsters. Success is accomplishing something in the encounter. It's stopping a ritual. It's stealing an item. You know, lots of different things that you can do. My friend Dave Chalker, game designer, did a lot of, did a lot of writing, wrote this website, Critical Hits, wrote, now does a bunch of board game stuff and other role-playing game things. He talked about this as the combat out, right? What is the way, this was big in fourth edition because combat was so long. We wanted a way to end a battle that wasn't just one side wiping out the other, right? And it was like fighting for a particular position, you know, trying to activate or deactivate something, trying to rescue somebody or, or get, you know, escape somebody or just kill one person, right? So again, you want an exercise? What are 10 ways that you can end a battle that isn't one side wiping out the other? What are 10 ways that in, an, in a combat encounter, 10 objectives, think about it like a war game, right? What are the objectives in the war game? The objectives could be lots of different things that aren't just wipe out the other side. So what are 10 different ways that you can have a setup, a situation where the battle is over, the battle succeeds by some objective that isn't killing the other side. So that is definitely another way to make it more challenging. And, and that will challenge it because it could be much harder than just killing everybody, is actually making your way over there and getting that delicate glass orb and bringing it back like a football without it shattering or without it being destroyed, right? So that definitely, I think those are, those are a few options. There are, there are others, of course, but I think that those are a few ways to make challenging, to make, to make challenging battles. Robin G says, if you had a budget for one D&D book a month, what would you buy and in what order? This is a good question. And I will, I will, I will probably put this list in the show notes so that it's more specific. I would start with the players. So I would start with, and, and Robin, I think in your original, I abbreviate, I, I, I edit these notes, right? And you already mentioned that you had the box sets. So I would start with probably Dragon of Ice Spire Peak. I haven't seen what the new starter set is like yet, right? And I might decide that that's the one you should buy. But I think Dragon of Ice Spire Peak is a really, really good starting box set because you can make characters from scratch. You can play a solo game. It's a lot going on. And you can get a lot of free stuff, like free pregens if you want pregens. But Dragon of Ice Spire Peak, I think, is the first thing I would buy. 
Then I would probably pick up the player's handbook, followed by the monster manual, followed by the dungeon master's guide. I, I get the three core books as the next three, the next three. At that point, you have everything you really need to play D&D forever right? Those, those books are fantastic and they could last a long, long time. After that, I would probably pick up Xanathar's Guide because Xanathar's Guide has a lot of really good things that improve the Dungeon Master's Guide. They have a lot of class options that can, that can really extend it. I would definitely pick up the Xanathar, Xanathar's Guide. After that, I would probably pick up Monsters of the Multiverse because you already don't have Volo's Guide or Mordenkainen's. So it's not a question of whether you're going to replace. And Monsters of the Multiverse in a single volume has hundreds of pages, 300 pages of tons of new monsters. So in the same way that Xanathar's expands the game out with new class options, Monsters of the Multiverse expands it out with new monsters of all different kinds. So at that point, you have really extended the game significantly, right? Like those that book, you've extended it significantly. I would reluctantly put Tasha's on there. I don't think Tasha's is nearly as valuable a book for extending the game as xanathar's was but it does have some class option stuff that i think can be really valuable i really i think i like all of the material that it has it has on sort of how to extend classes that aren't just new builds new new subclasses i think are good the subclasses i don't i don't find particularly great for for uh, some of them i think are don't work are unbalanced and some of them i just find are really weird and i don't think they extend it as well I don't think they extend the game as well as Xanathar's Guide does. I After that, I think I would probably pick up Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft or the Eberron Rising from the Last War book, depending on a campaign that you wanted to play. If you wanted to run some kind of gothic-y horror sort of stuff, Van Richten's Guide is great, packed with monsters, really good. If you wanted to do a different campaign world that's very unique, that's unique to D&D and very different from every other fantasy world, Eb that Eberron Rising from the Last War, I think I would put that ahead. Eberron Rising from the Last War is an excellent excellent book i probably put that ahead of tasha's frankly and and then you know i could keep going but like odds you know fizzband's guide is really good you can go on from there but each one of those books is sort of like you know those first four are really important like a lot and then they, they can continue to get better but i think that that's sort of the, the the way that i would buy it if you could pick up a book a month and i think that would work well my friends, that is it for today's Lazy D&D Talk Show. I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me today. I hope you have enjoyed the show. If you've enjoyed the show, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, supporting me directly on Patreon, going to the Sly Flourish bookstore and picking up any of my books, or clicking the subscribe button right here on YouTube. Thank you all so much. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D.